read the prayer of illumination, I just thought I'd say to you that while the pastor is away, we still may eat lunch. So I thought that um, on the 19th of the month, that's a week from Tuesday, we could all get together at Sunny Jim's just as if the pastor was here with us. And uh, we'll commute and eat together and uh, say a prayer for them all. Maybe so, I'll Skype in. What? Maybe I'll Skype in. There you go. <laughs> maybe, we'll, maybe we'll Skype in and uh, see some uh, pictures of Africa in the process. So join us on the 19th at Sunny Jim's, 1130. Uh, now hear the word uh, as it's proclaimed. <clears throat> Lord God, may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Listen for God's special word to you this morning. The Old Testament lesson comes to us from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 26, verses 1 to 11. When you come into the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground and what you harvest from your land that the Lord your God has given you. And ye shall put it in a basket, and ye shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. And ye shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make response before the Lord your God. A wandering Aramean was my father, and he went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, and there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly, and humiliated us, and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice, and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders, and he brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first of the fruit of the ground which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house. You and the Levite, and the sojourner who is among you. Our New Testament lesson comes to us from the Gospel of Luke, reading from chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, 
come to become bread. And Jesus answered them, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks God. God. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. These promises that Satan made to Jesus were not empty promises. The adversary does not make empty promises. The promises made to Jesus during his temptation were deceitful. They were misleading. They left out huge, important parts of the story, but they were not empty. Jesus could have done all those things. After fasting in the desert for a while, his empty stomach was aching and hollow, and Satan knew that. The adversary knew what Jesus' physical weakness was in that moment. The liar knew exactly what Jesus is capable of doing. Once his ministry begins, Jesus will make water into wine. He will feed thousands with nothing more than a little boy's lunch. Surely, this Jesus can make stones become bread to fill his aching, empty stomach. The lie is not that Jesus could do this thing. The lie is not even that Jesus needs physical sustenance of some sort. The lie is that God will not provide it when the time is right and that therefore Jesus should handle it himself outside of the promises of God. Jesus, very God, could have made the world bow to him right then, and Satan knew it. The adversary knew Jesus' divine capabilities. The liar knew what the people expected Jesus to be. It could have all been his kingdom at that very moment. He could have come sweeping into Jerusalem like the military political savior the people were hoping for and squash the Roman authorities in an instant. 
The lie is not that Jesus could do this thing, or even that the people would lift him up and celebrate him for doing it. The lie is that God does not already have something even more astounding in the works, and that Jesus, therefore, should do what the world expects and sweep in as a political and military hero. Jesus healed countless people suffering from every sort of ailment possible. Jesus said to Lazarus, Lazarus, who was rotting and stinking in his tomb, get up. And Lazarus got up. Three days after his own death, Jesus lived again. Jumping off the top of the temple would have been no big deal. Again, the lie is not that Jesus could do this thing. The lie is that Jesus should do this now to reveal his glory by saving himself rather than revealing himself by saving others. Satan did not tempt Jesus with anything outlandish or impossible. Satan did not tempt Jesus with things that were outside of his reach as the Son of God. Satan tempted Jesus with things that were attainable and that were just true enough to be dangerous. Things that were true in the realm of the world around them, even if they went against the words of Scripture and the promises of God. Jesus replied to Satan's seemingly reasonable suggestions with the words of Scripture. Jesus replied to Satan not just with any words of Scripture, but with the words of eternal promises made by God. Promises countering temptation. Promises that one often must wait for, but truthful ones that outlast and outshine the deceitful promises made by Satan. In each of these temptations posed to Jesus, the lie is more about the timing and who is in charge of the thing than about the thing Jesus is asked to do. Satan doesn't try to trip Jesus up. He doesn't tempt him with outlandish things that no one could ever picture Jesus doing, murderous rampage or some grave violence or theft. He simply tweaks the timeline of the truth just a little bit. But Jesus... Knowing the promises of scripture, knowing all the words that have been passed down to God's people for guidance, protection, and direction, sees the discrepancies in the suggestions that the adversary makes and calls them out. Yes, I am hungry. Yes, I can turn this rock into bread. But no, I cannot break this fasting time, this sacred communion with God. I cannot end it early because the spiritual importance of it outweighs the physical need for having a little bit of dinner right now. Yes, Jesus says, I am the son of God. Yes, I can make all these kingdoms bow before me right here and right now. But that's not how this is meant to shake down. These people and all their children and grandchildren to come have an eternity that I have to consider. Yes, I could jump off this tower right now and be totally fine. And yes, I am here as a revelation of God's love and glory, and the revelation of God's love and glory is very, very important. But no, this is not how God says that is meant to happen. Jesus doesn't just know the scripture and use it as rote argument 
against Satan either. He doesn't just cherry pick the passages that work for his agenda or use the lines he'd memorized in Sunday school as a kid that go as the counter arguments. Jesus knows that the path God laid out isn't easy by worldly standards. He knows that it's the harder road to walk. But to say yes to these requests, to give in to the just true enough suggestions that Satan makes would be to say no to the eternal things of God. It would be to say no to what really matters. And it's not just Jesus' memorized knowledge of God's promises in Scripture that enables him to resist these temptations. It's his trust that these promises are real. These promises are true. He knows them and he believes and relies on them. These promises are worthy of his trust and his faith. It's not willpower or knowledge that resists these temptations. It is faith. Satan, Hasatan, which means the adversary in Hebrew, or Diablo, the liar in Greek, it's not actually used as a proper name in most of scripture, makes promises all the time. The promises that the adversary makes to us are not empty, like the ones made to Jesus. They are not empty, but they are deceitful. They come from the mouth of dishonesty itself, but they are not empty. And that is what makes them so hard to resist. Temptation is more than just giving in to doing something bad. And resisting temptation involves more than just not doing bad stuff that's on the list of bad stuff to not do. The most dangerous temptations are not the outlandish ones that are clearly lies. The dangerous ones are the ones that are just true enough to be appealing or look like they are actually true. The dangerous ones are the ones that are just true enough that the world has bought into them. Satan fills the very air around us with lies and partial truths, with these almost true and entirely deadly lies. Just true enough, just enough grounding in reality that they are hard to separate from the truth. Lies like, if you just work harder and buy another car, then you'll truly be happy. God wants you to have everything you need, after all. Once you get that promotion, you'll finally have all the respect you need, and then you'll be really worthwhile in this world. God wants you to know how great you are. You can't single-handedly fix unjust systems in the world, so just don't hurt anyone directly, make a few donations, and that's good enough. It's none of your business. Turn away. You just have to pray for them. You don't have to get involved. Someone else will help. Well, you'd be happier if this other person would just get their act together and treat you right. After all, God calls that person to have healthy Christian relationships with other people. You're too busy. It's not worth your time. You don't really have to read your Bible. You've read it before. And the liar even spreads lies that entire communities take in, believe. Lies like, you're good enough, you're keeping the building standing and the lights on, so you don't have to worry about change or growth or any of that hard stuff. Lies like, new faces in church are great as long as they behave, stay in their lane, and don't try to change the way we do things. You're just too small, too old, and too tired of a congregation to make a difference in the community, so just maintain the status quo and that'll be good enough. That liar knows every single word of scripture my dear friends, knows every single feeling that you're going through, dear ones, knows exactly what the world is bombarding us with. And that liar knows what we are capable of, 
and what God has promised us. That liar knows our desires, our weaknesses, our abilities, and that liar is crafty. We don't get some sort of holy brownie points or stickers on our Jesus charts for knowing the Bible. This is not about a memory verse contest or Bible quizzing. This is about knowing the truth as well as the liar does. Because if we don't, it is very hard to separate truth from almost truth and the liar's temptations from God's promises. The only way to truly resist the temptations, the deceitful promises that Satan makes to us is to reply with the words of scripture as Jesus did. And just memorizing bits and bobs of scripture here and there and uh, embroidering them on a few pillows is not helpful. It must be written on our hearts, carved into our very being, known, not just recited. And that's why it's so important for us to spend so much time studying the Bible. We have to know God's promises and be able to pry apart the lies from the truth. We must know in our core the promises that one must often wait for, but truthful ones that outlast and outshine the deceitful promises made by the adversary. And that's what Lent is about. Lent is about carving scripture onto our hearts, about resisting the temptation to believe those insidious lies. It's about modeling our responses in a tempting world after those of Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness. Man shall not live on bread alone. It is not all about today. Today matters, and Jesus doesn't say people don't need to eat. What Jesus says is that we are more than just physical beings. And when our physical desires are put before the spiritual, we have bought into the lies. As we pray and fast and wait in the quiet for God during Lent, this is what we are doing. We are putting the spiritual first. That's why fasting is considered important during this season. It reminds us that we can't just live on bread. We need so much more than that. Worship the Lord your God and God alone. There are many things to worship in this world. There are many things we worship without even thinking about it as worship money status politics other people we make people out to be political or military messiahs like the jewish people expected jesus to be we believe the lies that money and status are something that we are owed as followers of god and that they are things that somehow make us more worthy than others and so as christians we spend extra time during lent setting those things that get in the way aside We give extra time and money to charity. We remember others in prayer, and we remember our own need for God. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is not a time in which we ask God for specific signs. This is not a time in which we agree to believe God's promises if. This is a time in which we, like Jesus, step out in faith and declare those promises. We open ourselves up to them by reflection and reading scripture. We stand on the foundation of that word even when it doesn't look like we expect or want it to. We open ourselves up, like Jesus, to the ultimate promises of God. So I have a challenge for you to take on this Lent. You know I love to give you all homework. Read a chapter of one of the Gospels each day. That's it. Pick a Gospel, any Gospel. 
and read a chapter a day. A chapter is about a page long, depending on how large the print is in your Bible. But just one page per day is one page more of scripture per day than most Americans read, churchgoers included, according to recent studies. Many Americans have never read anything in the Bible at all and only know what they know or think they know about it from TV and Facebook memes and maybe a few words that someone else has shared with them. Many have never stepped foot in a church. Most, including people in churches, don't read their Bible outside of Sunday morning services, let alone every day. How on earth can we expect to combat the almost true lies of the adversary when we don't know the actual truth? When the liar is speaking things that are so close to the truth, we can't expect to take someone else's word for it. We need to know it for ourselves and test those things we hear for ourselves. There is nothing that gives me more delight than when someone asks me to clarify what I meant by something in a sermon, because that means you're not just taking my word for it. I sound a little bit like LeVar Burton right now, but don't take my word for it. You're listening and reading and you're wrestling and you're asking the Holy Spirit to reveal if I've been listening and reading and wrestling to get to the truth. I love it when you all ask me seemingly off-the-wall questions about the Bible or tell me something that you've been learning in your biblical studies because that means you are taking this seriously and this is the heart of what we must be doing together. And so I invite you all to enter this journey through Lent with open hearts and open minds, with quiet and thoughtful reflection on Scripture, lots of it. Let it be such a part of your being that a great sign of your faith is your ability to say to the liar, that is a lie. This is the truth. This Lenten season, let the scripture wash over you and into every crack and crevice of your being. Amen.